As you were walking in today, if you took a glance to your right, you probably noticed they actually blew through the wall, and we are just about ready to take our next step into our new building in phase two. And if I were to ask you, what do you think is the most important component to building this building? What do you think that might be? Well, take the guesswork out. The most important component would be to have the building plans. If we're going to build the building, it's got to be according to the plans. And every time we interface with the superintendent, uh, he always says, well, hey, what do the plans say? What are the specs calling for? We'll always go back to the plans. Here's actually a picture of the plans that they actually use. They're actually sitting out there in the new foyer there. And you notice how well-worn they are. I mean, like, we obviously had a caffeine explosion there. She's got this coffee running through the foyer and stuff like that. Uh, they're torn, they're marked up, because they're always going back to the plans, because what the plans call for is what we're going to build, and they're always looking at that. It's kind of like, what's the most important part of an ox cart? The most important part of an ox cart are the blueprints. Once you lose the blueprints for your ox cart, your terminal on ox carts, you're not going to be making anymore. You've got to know what the plans are. So that's true for buildings, and that's true for ox carts, but that's especially true for a church and for people who are truly knowing God. So what is God's plan? What's his goal for his people? I mean, you know that you've got to know where you're going and how you're going to get there. That's how you got to church today, right? If you were in business, you better have a business plan. Or it's going to be a pretty thin profit margin, or worse. If you're a team, or you're a, an orchestra, you've got to have a plan of knowing where you're going and how you're going to get there. You need to know that God has a plan for his people. He has his goal for the church, his goal for his people, and you don't have to guess about it. You don't have to make it up as you go. God has revealed it clearly, and you find it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And as we're about ready to take these next steps this summer into our new building, we're going to take some time to just focus on what is God's plan for his people. And let me tell you, it's twofold, and you're going to find it right here in chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. First of all, God wants us to know the power of Christ in us. Take a look at it, verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So what is this mystery? Look at verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, don't miss it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You always know what is most important to you by what you're willing to suffer for or even make sacrifices for. And notice in verse 24, Paul says, you know what? I want you to know, this is like, this is his mission statement. I am willing to suffer. In fact, I do. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body. What he's saying is, I'm willing to suffer for the forwarding of this mission. 
And when he's talking about the body, I do my share uh, on behalf of his body, you need to understand that the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And when you inflict pain upon the body, it's also inflicting pain upon the head. Remember when Paul, before he's known as Paul, he's known as Saul, and he's making his way to Damascus where he's going to go and persecute the Christians? And remember, God had him knocked off his horse, and he's kind of down on the ground, and there is this voice from heaven, and it's like, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, it, then Jesus says, for I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul thought he was going after Christians, and he was. But to persecute the body is to persecute the head of the body. And so you need to understand, God has designed it where the church is to be taking its signals from the head. That's how your body and my body works, right? Our mind sends the signals, and we're supposed to operate. If your body is moving apart from the signals of your mind, you got problems, right? If your body doesn't respond to the signals of the head, you could have paralysis, right? Hopefully it's your turn. And if your head is severed from your body, you've got... You're dead, right? See, you and I, we're, we've been brought into the body of Christ and we're to respond to what the head is saying. And what Paul is saying here is like, I'm willing to suffer for the body because there is, there is something that is so critically important. And he says to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There is in no way that human suffering, even human suffering among Christians, in any way it adds to the atonement or the vicarious work that Jesus did on our behalf. But you need to know that when Christ's body suffers, he suffers. And those are the afflictions that he's talking about. And so he says, verse 25, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. A stewardship is, has the idea that you're a servant and you serve a master. You've been entrusted with resources and responsibility. And you saw this as servants, very, very familiar in the New Testament times. They could have been entrusted with other servants, resources, money. They were trained. They did work. And they did it all for the interest of the master. Their most important mission was to fulfill what the master had called them to do. And so he said, that's what I do. I've been made a minister. I, it's a stewardship from God, and it's for your benefit, and so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. You see, what Paul understood is that people must know the word of God. God doesn't want his, his mystery to remain a mystery. He wants people to understand the word. And what the word of God does, the word of God always points us to and draws us near to the son of God so that we'll accomplish the will of God. And so he keeps saying, this is a mystery that I have been entrusted. It's found in the word of God. And the mystery is something that has been maybe hinted at in the Old Testament, but not explained until the New Testament came. And so it is something that has been prefigured, but not explained. But in the New Testament, God explains this mystery. And the most preeminent mystery revealed in the New Testament is what is found in verse 27. That is, notice what he says, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the greatest mystery ever been revealed in the universe is that God literally would dwell in the lives of his people. 
It's one thing if you were a Jewish person to realize, like, wow, God would condescend to such a level that we, his chosen people, that his spirit, the spirit of Messiah, would reside in us. But to be a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, outside of the covenant, this is amazing truth, that God would reside in his people. And this is what the emphasis of the New Testament is, that Christ literally dwells in the lives of his people. Like it says here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like Galatians 2.20, remember what Paul said? Uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What God has done is he's placed his spirit in the lives of his people. I will tell you this. If you do not truly know Christ, if you're not really believing in him, you have this God shaped void in the core of your soul. And you are, if you're not trusting Christ, you are trying to fill it with anyone or anything but him. In fact, you could safely say that if you're not trusting in Christ, your life is filled with idols. What is an idol, by the way? It's a God substitute. Whatever you want. If you try to find your sense of identity, purpose, peace, security, salvation, Apart from trusting Christ, you're probably filling it up with power, possessions, accolades, achievements, uh, conquest, money, entertainment. You know, and a lot of these things, they're not wrong. In fact, many of these are gifts from God. The problem is that if you try to take these gifts from God and make them a God, it never works. You are never satisfied. That's, that yearning in your soul keeps clamoring. And you're aware of this. I mean, part, before I knew Christ, I definitely could understand this hole that exists in my life. And so what people today do is like they got this hole, so they try to fill it with anything and anything but God. I mean, you got you got like constant stream on your phone. And, and notice, people just have to be on their phone because it keeps them from realizing, hey, there's something far more to life, and you're missing it. Or you try to fill it with entertainment or experiences or just gain this or get more money, whatever it might be. Friends, if it's not God, it's an idol. And God's purpose is that you and I would daily know the power of his presence. That's why, like it said in Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. This is the mystery. You know, it's interesting, but this mystery is still a mystery to most people. I would say there are a lot of Christians that actually don't understand this. God's purpose is that you and I realize the power of his presence. There's a guy by the name of William Randolph Hearst. Um, he really revolutionized journalism. He owned the largest newspaper chain in the late 1880s, 90s, and all the way up to the 1950s before he died. And one of the things that he did with all this massive fortune that he had is that he kept acquiring artwork. He became a prolific art collector. One time he was producing a catalog and he saw some items of art that he felt like he absolutely must have to have. And so he circled them, he brought his team in that were just basically doing whatever he wished. He said, listen, I want you to go find these and buy them. I don't care what the cost, but I want them. And he handed him uh, this catalog where he circled these pieces of art. And so his team went to work, and these guys uh, uh, trying to figure out where this might be. And a few days later, they set up an appointment with Mr. Hurst to uh, tell him that his staff has indeed found these pieces of art that he wants. And he's like, wait, 
And he says, you already own them. They're in your European vault. Isn't that crazy? He already had it, but he realized that he needed it. Is that true for you? Friends, you, what you and I really need, we need Jesus Christ to experience the power of his presence. And friends, that is the mystery that has been revealed. We're familiar with Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? But do you really know Christ who strengthens you? Whatever God desires us to do, he empowers us to do through Christ. And so that's what the Word of God does. It shows us the glory of Christ and our need for Him. It keeps pointing to telling us that we can trust Christ, and it's calling us to do this and center our lives upon Him. You see, God's goal for His people is that you and I would know the power of Christ in us. And let me tell you, second of all, God's goal for His people. Not only would we know the power of the presence of Christ, but that we would grow to the fullness of maturity, that we would grow to be fully mature believers in Christ. And so look at verse 28 and 29. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is really Paul's restatement of the great commission that we got from Jesus. You guys know the Great Commission, don't you? Okay, we don't. Okay, well, let me refresh to your memory. If you are a Christian, you have been commissioned by Jesus to do this. To go and make disciples of all the nations. To baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is triune in nature, one. One God, three persons. And we are to teach them all that Christ has commanded. Everything. Not just a few things. Everything, And God knows that this will be difficult, and it cannot be done apart from him. That's why Jesus said, and listen, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will empower you, I will equip you, but I want you to do this. And so this is what Paul is saying. We got one message. We, verse 28, proclaim him. To proclaim is what a herald did with an official message. You just heralded it. You spoke it with authority. And you didn't care how people necessarily responded. You announced, this is our message. This is God's message for the world. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't a system. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's not a code of ethics that you try to adopt. Christianity is about a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes... Uh, what happens is we present salvation as if like it's like buying like life insurance. And it's kind of like, and this happens. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Like, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go to hell. Well, just say that you believe in Jesus and you're going to be good. Okay? Is that all I have to say? Yeah. And, and so a lot of people think that's all there is to it. No. God wants you to really know his son. Not know just a couple truths about him, but to actually have relationship with him. That's why we proclaim Christ. Christ is our source of salvation. He's the one who's literally purchased our, the, purchased our salvation. He's paid the penalty for sin. He's also given us his righteousness. This is what you need to understand. That Jesus Christ prophesied, came into the world, he 
fulfilled over a hundred of the prophecies made about him. He lived an absolute perfect life. He fulfilled all the law. He was righteous, never sinned. And by virtue of his death and resurrection, you and I who believe, we're united with Christ. And God takes the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, and he places it in our lives, just like we saw when we went through the book of Romans. You see, God can't have unholiness in his presence. And we got problems. We're sinful, right? So what God has done is he's united us with Christ, and we are always in Christ. In fact, God never sees us in our sin, always in his son. God is our source of salvation because of Christ. Christ is our source of righteousness, and Christ is our source of spiritual empowerment. Remember, it is Christ in you. He literally invests his Holy Spirit in our life. He, like it says in Ephesians 1.13, he seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's why Jesus said, listen, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we got one message, and that message is Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 28, we want to grow to the fullness of maturity in him. So how do you do that? That's why Paul is admonishing every man. It has the idea that you confront or you're warned with the intent of changing one's attitude or actions. It's to bring about correction so that they walk in the, ex the experience of holiness. They experience restoration and health. If you really care about people, you would be willing to correct them. Friends, if you don't care about someone, you're just like, eh, that's fine. You were walking away, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I see that you're going in a direction that's really going to be harmful, and it's, it's already creating a wake of damage. If you don't care about someone, just leave them alone, turn the other way, just, just ignore it. On the other hand, if you do love them, and you love Christ, you're willing to engage. You want people to be brought to the fullness of truth, just like this text says. So you, we've admonished, Paul says, we'll deal with the difficulty, we, we care, we are valued, healing and restoration and holiness and health. And we, notice he says, we teach every man. This has the idea of imparting positive truth, showing how God's word literally applies to our lives. And he says, and we do so, we're teaching every man with all wisdom. Wisdom has the idea of skill for living, so that you live skillfully, well. And he says, we do this so that we may present, and you might want to underline this, every man complete in Christ. Every single person has the potential to become fully mature in Jesus Christ. That word complete, Greek word teleos, it has the idea of fullness or maturity. It is to be like Christ. That is God's goal for his people, that we know the power of his presence, and that we are growing in the fullness of maturity in Christ. I will tell you that the most amazing, draining, perplexing, and rewarding long-term activity I've ever been a part of is parenting. I mean, it's like when you get this little baby, all right, and you're like holding them. First of all, I remember holding Ashley like, man, I've got to start being really responsible. You know, I was semi-responsible. It really kicked in high gear when I was holding that little baby. And, you know, it's like once you get this little baby, it's like one change after another. And I'm talking more than just diapers, you know. It's just they're literally, they're making changes. And they're, they like start to roll and they can move their hand. And, and that, that first step, man, you're wondering why I didn't make the front page of the newspaper because this is huge news, right? 
You're like tracking all these changes. And then they can, they can talk, and then they can sing, and they can run, and they can jump, and they can start to shoot a basketball, and they can go to school, and they can learn, and they got ideas and creativity. And next thing you know, they can ride a bike, and that's a little dangerous. But then one day, they can actually drive a car, and they can actually even hold down a job. And friends, that's the natural, normal pattern. And that's what we want as parents, right? We want our kids to grow up to the fullness of maturity in every respect. To walk with God and to be able to handle themselves in life, right? We want that. You need to know, that's what God wants for his children. Every good parent doesn't want their kid to stay at age two. Huge stage, a lot of fun, but what we want them to do is grow to the fullness of maturity, right? If they're not developing past age two, there's something wrong, right? And we're going to want to address that. It might be something wrong with our parenting. It might be something that we need to try to help our child with. But that's what we desire. And that's what God desires for his people. That we would grow to the fullness of maturity that every person would be made complete in Christ. What's maturity? Stability. Dependability. That you have growth and intellect. That you have emotional capacity and emotional control. I mean, none of us like to see immaturity in ourselves or in others, do we? Now, don't elbow your person next to you, or point, right? I don't like to see immaturity in me, right? I don't, we don't like to see immaturity in others, and we pick up on it really quickly. Like, when you act this way, you're like, Ew. you know, that, that is, like, that's putting you at an elementary school age level, how you're going through this and how you're responding. What we really desire is maturity. And what you want to be, friends, is you want to be a fat person. Hold on, okay? Fat, acronym, for faithful, able, teachable. Faithful, able, teachable. All the guys that I've discipled over all the years, I'm always looking for those three qualities. Faithful, able, teachable. I find that if you're missing any one of those components, it never works. There's always a breakdown until we can pick all three up. That's what God desires in our life. Faithful, able, teachable. That we're growing and maturing. And that's what Paul's mission statement is. That we present every single person mature or complete in Christ. And he says, verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I'm going to labor. He says striving. It's the Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get our word agonize. I'm going to pour it out all on the floor. It's speaking of like an epic that leaves everything on the field. But I'm going to let you know that I'm doing it in the power of Christ. Friends, this is God's goal for his people. That we know the power of Christ in us, and that we are growing in the fullness of maturity in Christ. I find that I've got a lot of opportunities to talk about Fellowship Bible Church. People ask me, like, tell me about the church. And I don't know what you folks are doing, but it must be good. Because people have questions. And so what I usually do is I say, well, it's kind of like our logo. We're like an oak tree. You see, a tree establishes roots, and as those roots grow deep and bring in soil, nutrients from the soil and water, the equivalent effect is that it, it really starts reaching out and branching out and bearing fruit. That's what God's doing, is we have a relationship with Christ. We're, we're trying to grow deep in Christ and knowing Him and His Word, and we're branching out, reaching out, and bearing fruit. That's Fellowship Bible Church. And so, what does those spiritual maturity look like? I believe that after reading this passage, like all of us would say, like, yeah, man, we want spiritual maturity, but what does it really look like, specifically? Could you just put it down in a very simple, concrete, applicational way? What does maturity look like? Well, we do this with what we call, like, the maturity tree. 
And it's, it's just our simple logo. And it's just like I talked about. What happens is you and I have to come to a place where we're truly knowing Christ. We're believing and trusting in him. And when we do, it's like we become like a little sapling. Have you ever seen just a little bitty tree? I mean, it's, like, it's right there. It's got all the DNA that it can really grow and become a fully mature tree. But right now, it's really little. Don't step on it, right? And it has the potential to grow. And what happens is when you and I place our faith in Christ, he unites us with himself. We are literally a new creature. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17? It says that we are, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. What makes you new is that you've actually been united by Christ by faith. And so what happens is God wants us to grow. And so how we grow is we sink deep roots in knowing God and his word. We're knowing God in prayer. and We're growing in his word. And you have to understand that if you've got a poor diet, you don't have a lot of good growth. So what we're trying to do, what God intends, is that we would grow deep in him. You need to know that every tree that you see, what you see above ground, has kind of the equivalent root system underneath the ground that you don't see. And if you want the tree to grow, the roots have to grow. And so God wants us diving into his word, learning how to pray, how to relate to him. Like it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction and righteousness, that the, that the man of God may be adequate. God wants us maturing. That's why he's given us his word. Let me give you just some simple questions just to kind of enrich your Bible today. I'll give you three. These three questions will, will help you go from a Bible like, I don't get it, to, wow, I think I'm starting to see First question, what is this passage teaching? So let's say you pick a book of the Bible this summer that you're going to read multiple times, like Colossians, and you read it over and over again. That's, what is this passage teaching? What am I learning about God, Jesus Christ, sin, leadership, uh, hope, trials, adversary, uh, life? What am I learning? Then the second question you ask is, why is it here? What purpose did God have this for? There is a purpose from everything from the genealogies to show you that every person is important to the very last statement in the Bible where Jesus says, yes, I'm coming quickly. So you ask, why is this here? And the third question, be very helpful, is, Lord, how should I respond? What does this mean? What is it teaching? Why is it here? How do I respond? God, are you calling me to a deeper faith or, or more trust in your sovereignty? Are you calling me to address the anger and the bitterness issues in my life? Are you, are you calling me to forgive? Are you calling me to find my joy in you and not so much in my circumstances? What, is, what are you supposed to be learning? You see, God brings transformation through his revelation. And the truth of God is given to transform our lives. So how are you doing following his word? You see, it's kind of like a sponge. And you take that sponge and you see that pool of water. That sponge, when it rests on that pool of water, it literally absorbs it. That's what we're to do with our lives. Absorbing God's word where it brings transformation to us. It's why we emphasize that you and I want to become self-feeders of the word. You know, when your kids are little and you have to feed them with, with the baby food jar thing in the little spoon, and I have to play like little games, like airplane games, you know, to get the food in the kid's mouth, right? Because they've got to eat that jar of baby food. That's important, right? At least that was my job. But you know, I want you to know that I have found by the time they get like late junior high, early high school, they can feed themselves. It is awesome. You know, they can do it. And see, God wants us to become self-feeders, where we can literally open our Bibles, read, pray, and grow. That's what he intends. 
And prior to knowing Christ, what we tried to do is we tried to draw nutrients and nourishment from the things of this world, like its values and its idols and its rewards and its ideals. The, the flesh, its lusts, to try to live life apart from God's parameters, or even the devil himself, who always has counterfeits, always throwing it our way to try to engage us. Before we knew Christ, that's how we lived. But since we placed our faith in Christ, guess what? That same toxic soil, it's out there. And if you're a Christian, and you're just engaging in the things of this world, just following your flesh, should it surprise you that your, your spiritual life is kind of sick and unhealthy? You are what you eat, right? True physically, definitely true spiritually. You know, if you've got a toxic soil around your tree, your tree's not going to do so well. But if that tree is drawing in good nutrients, it's being well-fed, it's going to grow. And as it grows, what happens is the trunk of that tree continues to grow and develop. That trunk represents character. So as we're abiding in Christ, God starts shaping our character. Your character is made up of two things. Your convictions, your beliefs, attitudes, and values, and your conduct, your behavior. And so you see that God starts shaping your convictions, like what you believe about Scripture, and God, and sin, and hell, and why you're here, and what you're to do with your life. God shapes your convictions about morality, and, and money, and what you're to do with the resources that you have. God also then starts shaping your conduct, how you behave. So as you're abiding in Christ, you're living in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is like love, joy, and pretty soon you start to have a sense of peace, and you see that God increases patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And all, it's like a, a continual work. It's not just one of them, it's just like this ongoing work, like the trunk is developing. Furthermore, you learn how to handle yourself better, and you demonstrate emotional control, and what you do with your resources, and, and how you actually engage people, and you become truthful, and a person that keeps your word, and all of this is the development of character, and I want to say something about character. Character is critical. How we get things done is more important than what we get done. Please don't forget that. You and I live out of the core essence of our values, our character, and who we are in Christ. And I'll tell you this. If Christ and character are not number one, you know what happens? We just end up kind of losing our way. Friends, character is critical. And that's exactly what Christ is developing in our life. Christ-like character, our convictions, and our conduct. And what happens is, that gets show, showing up as the tree branches out in our relationships, and in our ministry, and our career. We're going to spend several weeks talking about what this looks like. What does Christ-like character look like in our relationships? What does it look like in our um, ministry or career. You see, who we are in Christ affects how we live with others, whether it be our friends, co-workers, family members, even how you treat your enemy, how you deal with your employees, employers, your clients, fellow students. All of that is affected by who you are in Christ. We live out the character of Jesus. It also shows up in how we go about our day. If you are a truly a Christian, you are in the ministry. You just may not know it. But if you're a Christian, you represent Christ. He has gifted you. He's given you opportunities, whether you're a homemaker, or you're running a university, or you've got a business. Whatever you're doing, that is your ministry, and God intends to bear much fruit through your life where God has placed you. And friends, that's how we fulfill the Great Commission. 
We just live out the character of Christ and we see Christ bearing fruit through our lives, fruit that is potentially life-giving. It's kind of like these oak trees that are in front of my house. They start off really small, but they are huge now. And they drop thousands of acorns. Keeps me really busy trying to pick that up so I don't destroy my yard. But those acorns have the potential of being life-giving seeds. That's what God intends. We are making disciples. We're engaged in the lives of others. And literally, Christ is bearing fruit, all sorts of fruit, in our convictions, our conduct, in our relationships, and how we go about our days and our ministry and our career. Let me give you two really important questions. These questions have served me so well, and I think about them regularly. The first one is, Lord, what does maturity in Christ look like in this relationship or in this situation? What what would maturity in Christ look like? And then the second question is this. Lord, would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to do this? Whatever you you see, like, you know, maturity in Christ would be to handle it this way. Or to speak about this. Or to not say something. Whatever it might be. How do you want me to handle myself, Lord? And would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to do that? See, what God intends is that we would grow to the fullness of maturity in Christ. And there's different ways the roots are stimulated. One would be, and the most important, is that you have a personal time with God. Just start off with a couple minutes, but at least have some time with God on a daily basis. Maybe when you begin your day, good time. There's also ways of like being in a large group, like for instance in a, a worship service like this. Part of what takes place here is that God just stimulates root development in his people's lives as we study the word. But and then we give you another, like small groups, where you can actually interface with people, where you can talk, where you can have fellowship. And then, of course, perhaps one of the most powerful ways roots are developed in a person's life is through life on life, personal discipleship. One person engaging another, just dealing with the nitty-gritty of life and how God's word applies and stimulating and helping grow. But friends, God desires that we grow to the fullness of maturity. And that is why we are building this building. We are building to build lives. We're excited about the facility, but the, I'll tell you why. Because it is a facility that facilitates the ministry that God's entrusted to us. We want to see people truly know Christ and the power of his presence and grow to the fullness of maturity. And so that's what we do. We're like a hunter we just who calibrates his gun to make sure that his sights are on target. That's why we kind of keep coming back to the mission that God's entrusted to us. Or it's kind of like, remember you're in school and you had one of those wooden pencils? And when you used it, what happened? Well, it started getting dull and what you have to do? You'd have to go to the pencil sharpener, right? Remember that? <laughs> this is before the mechanical pencil deal. And you might have find that even if your pencil wasn't dull, you'd just go to the pencil sharpener. Why? Because you want to see how your friend was doing and buy the pencil sharpener, right? You're going to say, what's going on? The teacher's going to leave in a minute. You know what I mean? Right? You do things like that. But why did you sharpen the pencil? Because you wanted a sharp point. And that's what God is doing in this passage. He's bringing absolute clarity. This is what we are all about. This is God's goal for his people. And so, like a pilot of a plane or a captain of a ship, making sure he knows or she knows where they're going. So this is what we try to do in every aspect of our ministry. With the little children, all the way through our adults. Youth, college, it's all about presenting Jesus Christ in a very real way so that people will know him, know the power of his presence, and grow to the fullness of maturity in him. We're literally glorifying God by living out the life we have in Christ. If you're a, a guy who likes to follow Olympics or you're into like shooting, competitive shooting, you certainly know who Matt Emmons is. Um, he has won Olympic, Olympic medal 
all the way dating back to 2004. Just a few days ago, he actually won the World Cup in Germany. And he's planning on representing the United States uh, at the Games in Rio and just uh, coming up here real soon. Now, Matt Evans' first Olympic experience um, off to a kind of a great start. I mean, he actually he won a gold medal. Rather surprising. Things got really rough for Matt right prior to the Olympics. In April, someone vandalized his gun. I still don't know who did this. So he had to end up borrowing a gun that he used in the Olympics. So things were off to a little right start, rough start. You can understand why he had a bad first experience. But he was so far ahead in his second event, the 50-meter three-position rifle event, that all he had to do on his final shot was actually just hit the target. Didn't even have to hit a bullseye, and he would win the gold medal. And so he gets up there, and he gets in position. He aims, fires, and nothing happens. He's like, what? And this is a very famous pose. He's like, what's going on? And the priest and the officials start gathering. They kind of meet, and they break their little huddle, and they made this statement, this is an extremely rare mistake in elite competition, but the competitor shot at the wrong target. Matt was standing in lane two, and somehow he fire, fired at the target in lane three. Actually, made a really good shot. Would have been an 8.1. But because he shot at the wrong target, he got the score zero. He didn't even get partial credit. They don't do that in the Olympics. You shoot at the wrong target, you get a zero. And friends, instead of sitting on, standing on the bell stand, he was sitting in the grandstand. He had to take eighth place. And I tell you this because it doesn't matter how accurate you are. If you're shooting at the wrong target, you're going to miss it completely. You got the wrong goal. So let me just ask you, what are you aiming at? What is your goal, honestly, to evaluate your life? God, what is the goal that I'm pursuing? God's goal for our lives is that we grow to, into fully mature believers in Christ. That's the goal of Scripture. That's the goal of the church. That's the goal for our personal lives. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for just an amazing passage of Scripture. God, with great clarity, you tell us exactly what you intend for our lives, what you intend for our church, that we would know Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that we would truly grow to the fullness of maturity in you. And if there's someone here today who has never trusted in Jesus, would they just simply pray with me now and say, God, I, I turn from myself and my sin, and I turn and place my faith in your Son. And I need forgiveness of sins, and I need your direction and help and hope in my life. And Lord, for all of us, may we continue to grow the power, to know the power of his presence, and to grow into the fullness of maturity in your Son in every respect. So God, lead us on the next steps. Make that so very clear to us, and give us the grace to take these steps. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.